welcome to this edition of IFLR's Closing Conditions podcast. My name is Carrie Lai, Interim Managing Editor at International Financial Law Review. My guest today will be Craig Kederberg, Chief Legal Officer and Corporate Affairs Officer at Budweiser APAC. I'll be talking to Craig about the beer world and how it can contribute to ESG. It's good to have you with us, Craig. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be here with you. To start off, can you tell us a bit about how ESG is interwoven into your work as Chief Legal Officer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think ESG is interwoven into a lot of people's work these days, uh, and it's really kind of across across the world. Uh, but within Buzz, Budweiser APEC, right, we're, we're a brewer uh, here in Asia Pacific. We've got 50 breweries around Asia, uh, and we publicly listed on the Hong Kong Exchange in 2019. Uh, so at that point, we had been working uh, quite a long time within ESG and within the framework specifically. Uh, with it, and it's much more a company-wide initiative uh, than it is one that's legal-specific. Uh, one of the things I will say is I've been 11 years with ABI, the parent company of Budweiser APEC, uh, and it's been something that you know within the beer industry, essentially we we brew beer and we sell beer. Uh, and so if you are able to do things more efficiently, especially within a lot of the environmental metrics, it is actually very good business for your business overall. And so a lot of kind of the fundamentals of ESG are really baked into how you can operate a successful long-term business in the in the beer sector. So that's something that we've been doing for, for decades. Uh, and then, you know, I'd say the last probably three years or so, uh, our board and our CEO and our senior management team We've really put a lot more focus uh, within ESG and the framework. And, you know, some of it is the regulatory piece, but a lot more of it is just that there is a framework where you can talk constructively about a lot of these things. Because previously it was much more about, you know, CSR. It was about, you know, ethics and compliance. It was a lot of different topics. And ESG in a lot of ways gave a framework where you can even start to benchmark and look for comparisons and start to open gaps within your company. So that's where I think ESG has been enormously helpful, uh, is just to be able to have those conversations and have those comparative conversations. Uh, within within legal, you know, we spend a lot of time there. We actually have a uh, an ESG committee that's chaired by our CEO. Uh, and so I'm the, the, the management committee sponsor for that group. Uh, and that involves most of our management committee, who are all the direct reports of the CEO. Uh, and that's one where we actually have compensation tied in to ESG and to ESG performance for our company. Uh, so it does involve a lot of focus. Um, and then we have you know, well over 400 people who have their compensation tied in as well. And that can be from the, the brewing side, that can be from the sales side, uh, certainly within legal, uh, it can be on the people side. So there's a lot of different people who are very motivated, you know, both personally, but then also financially to be contributing in within ESG. Uh, and a lot of what uh, I do on the legal and the corporate affairs side uh, is make sure that our strategy is very connected in with our business strategy. So our ESG strategy is, is fully integrated into our business strategy uh, and that we're pulling in the right stakeholders to the right conversations and meetings so that we can drive impact within the business itself. There's a lot also of monitoring regulatory uh, regimes of the various countries and globally, what are the trends, You know, whether coming out of Asia or coming out of Europe or the Americas. Uh, so there's a lot of kind of those pieces as well, though, candidly, that's kind of more of a lagging indicator rather than, you know, where are things going from a business and operational and impact perspective? That's great to hear. 
So speaking of regulations, what have been the most instrumental ESG regulatory developments which have affected what you do in the past six to 12 months? Yeah, so six to 12 months, um, I would say probably the biggest one has been uh, TCFD uh, and the Hong Kong Exchange is putting that into uh, to place. We'll probably, I mean, we're, uh, we'll probably start reporting within TCFT and that framework even before the uh, the exchange requirement comes in. But that's something that we've seen, you know, in Japan where there's been a lot more disclosure within that area as well. And I think the exchange is probably on the front foot in terms of regulatory disclosure when it comes to TCFT specifically. Uh, there's been a lot of consolidation, I would say, within the uh, the ESG. Uh, analyst community, you know, where it used to be, there would be, you know, 30 or 40 different analysts, and you're starting to see a consolidation within MSCI, CDF, and a lot of the the other kind of reporting metrics that are there. So less regulatory, but it does have a lot of the same impacts in terms of the business operation itself. So in terms of the looking at the data integrity and standardization, these are really integral in ESG reporting. What challenges do you see in this area for businesses? Yeah, so I think most businesses struggle with standardization of data for their own operations, even before you start putting that into the external world uh, and then having having that compared and having apples to apples comparisons. Um, so uh, I think this is where it is very helpful to have kind of a full business mentality rather than having, you know, whether it's a legal team or it's a a PR team, uh, or even, you know, procurement or others looking at it kind of through a lens, uh, is, is really having that full business perspective so that, you know, you, you are able to standardize a lot more of the processes and methodologies because standardizing even, you know, one brewery compared to another brewery is quite difficult to standardize a lot of the metrics. And that's where we work very hard to do that from an operational efficiency perspective so that we can start to see where there are gaps around, you know, energy usage, water usage. Um, and that's something that, you know, for decades, we've put that as a core part of our ethos. Um, not so much from an ESG or a public perspective lens, but more from just a efficiency and a Im- continuous improvement lens about, you know, why is this brewery able to, to get by, you know, and use only, you know, two hectoliters of water for a hectoliter of beer versus others that are more at three or four. And those numbers have come down over time because we've been able to standardize a lot of that internal reporting uh, to then be able to say, all right, well, what is the reason? You know, are there any improvements that we're able to do at brewery B coming from brewery A? And there's always gaps that you can identify. So a lot of that kind of that that ground, that base level uh work, I think, needs to be a core part of the business and needs to then go into people's targets uh, and be actively managed. There's that whole mantra about if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so I think a lot of it starts with actually operating your business and managing your business so that it can always, you know, be be improved. And that's part of that mindset also of that continuous improvement of, you know, yes, maybe this brewery is the best in the world, but it's not the best of the world in everything. Uh, And certainly, you know, operationally, you know, even if it's the best sales team in the region, you know, it might not be the best within all of the different metrics. So being aware that, yes, you know, we're always striving for better and opening those gaps and then closing those gaps is a key part of our, our culture within ABI and within Budweiser, APEC. So that's, I think, kind of the key one that's there. 
Uh, and then once you start looking at reporting that externally, you face a lot of the same issues that you do uh, when you're a publicly listed company in general, whether that's Sarbanes-Oxley or a lot of the financial reporting, is you want to make sure that you have that really robust methodology uh, so that the output is not just reflective of one person saying yes, but it's part of that rigorous process that you've got the right person who's checking into that uh, and that you, you've you kind of followed, you've followed through to be able to have that confidence in your external reporting. So same as your financials, uh, you want that same robustness within your ESG outputs. Mm, definitely. So looking at um, the role of financial ESG products, where do you see the role of green loans and green bonds in driving ESG forward? Yeah, so for me, it's a very similar um, is what we've been talking about in a way about kind of pulling in a lot of the different impacts to the core business itself. Uh, I mean, we've done we uh, we did sustainability sustainability linked loans uh, issued those about a year ago uh, for half a billion dollars uh, in in Hong Kong uh, for for our company and certainly our, our parent company has done even larger issuances of that as well uh, and and this can I think be quite helpful um, to to the financial community and pulling the financial community into business operations and looking for those opportunities because a lot of the investors are looking for green loans or green uh, facilities. Uh, and this is where the banks are able to connect in between the operations and what the investor demand uh, is specifically. So I don't think it's that, you know, we've seen a lot of kind of cutting edge bonds and loans in the sense that issuers want to be able to deliver their targets. So you need to be fairly con- fairly conservative to be able to make sure that you're going to meet your goals. Um, you know, but at the same time, it is a way to you know, really take investor and consumer demand and tie it in and reward companies that are able to to deliver within that the green space or social bonds uh, or a, a lot of the other financial products where where banks have a role to play and investors are able to turn that appetite into concrete products that that benefit companies uh, that are working in the space for sure. And are there any, um, is there anything that you think can help motivate more issuers to issue such products? Uh, I think a lot of it will come from investor demand, both on the equity and the demand side. And so we've seen that, you know, first it came really from Europe, but we're starting to see, you know, triple digit growth uh, across all all markets in terms of that, that demand itself. Um, and so I think, you know, banks will follow that investor demand uh, and companies, uh, if they're not already working within the ESG space and thinking about these these different types of product, products, will be will be incentivized to be moving in that space, even if it's not front of mind for a lot of issuers today. So I think a lot of it will come from that investor demand and investor demand also is quite reflective of consumer demand uh, in terms of kind of what are the companies that consumers you know, want to be spending their, their, their money with, you know, who are the employers that can attract in the best talents, you know, as, as people have many options about where they work, uh, you know, there, and so there's, it's a bit of that flywheel cycle where you start working within one area, you push and it starts going much faster and faster. And it, it kind of creates a virtuous cycle that comes out of it. So those are a couple different points that I see that can that can generate it. I candidly, maybe cynically, don't see that a lot of it will come from banks specifically. I think of banks very much as intermediaries between, you know, to create the market and between, uh, you know, buyers and sellers in a way. 
Uh, and I think there's a, an important role for that to be played. Uh, but I think so much of it, more of it comes from consumers and from investors uh, and those who are looking to make long-term decisions uh, that are more sustainable for business and certainly more sustainable for the planet. Great to hear. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, what do you see as the role of the in-house legal counsel in pushing the ESG agenda forward? Yeah, uh, so this is, I think, I might take a bit of a different uh, answer on this one because my sense is that, you know, in-house counsel is quite on board with ESG uh, and with various facets of ESG, um, particularly within the social space itself. Um, and part of that is, I think, thinking long-term uh, and thinking sustainably for your, your company. And certainly legal officers uh, do a lot of that. Um, I do think it's also a risk for chief legal officers and for uh, any any in-house, uh, you know, to to make sure that your that it's always connected very much to the operations and to your company itself. Uh, both because I think it's more sustainable for the business itself long term, uh, and I think it's also one of those where you know everybody would like to be make claims about things going on, and you need to be really careful about what claims are being made. Um, because so far, you know, ESG started very much as a carrot and as a bonus and as a positive thing going forward. Um, and certainly, if you look at plaintiffs bar in many jurisdictions uh, and regulators uh, in many, many jurisdictions as well, you're starting to see that there's a lot more of this, this stick uh, as well. And so any of those external claims certainly will be uh, subject to scrutiny. Um, and so I think there is a very important role for in-house counsel to make sure that people within the business are very aware of what's coming long-term um, and moving a company in a direction that is more sustainable. Um, that is a strategic question about what is more sustainable for the long run. And so that decision should definitely be made at the board and CEO and that senior management level even more than I would say chief legal officer or within an in-house counsel. Certainly there's lots of different people advocating and I'm sure all of the, the listeners will have different projects that they personally are passionate about and should be advocating for. Uh, but there's a very big difference I view from that personal passion versus what is best for the company going forward and making sure that you're looking at it through all of the different lenses that need to be looked at uh, from the board and from senior management to be able to make those decisions about, look, these are our eight strategic pillars, or these are our three themes that we're looking at, um, and making sure that it is best for the company overall. Um, so there's a role for advocacy, and there's a role for long-term thinking and stewardship of the company, and there's a role for liaising and pulling out the best ideas and framing and convening uh, forums. Um, so it's, I think it's each of those are important, but it's also important not to confuse and to muddle you know, or, or, or pull together the different roles uh, that you would have as in-house counsel. Okay, interesting. Do you have an example of that that you can share about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I'll tell you within my company, you know, we have been uh, doing emergency drinking water, which is essentially, uh, we've been doing this for probably about 40 years. Um, and what this means is when a natural disaster hits, uh, we as, you know, Anheuser-Busch in the U.S. started this, but we'll stop the brewery lines and we will then not be producing beer on the canning line. We'll switch over to water, different packaging, and we'll produce cans of water uh, because safe drinking water in natural disasters is one of the, the highest, 
you know, needs in the community specifically. Uh, and so we, because of our, our, our network and route to market, uh, we are in most communities in the U.S. and same in China and same in many countries. And so this was something that we were able to use our scale and our distribution network to be able to help people in a very Im impactful way. Um, and that's one I feel very passionate about. Um, I've seen that, you know, through generations in my family about the impact that goes along with that as well. Um, and that's something that that we've done. We, we rolled that program out in Australia when we were there, uh, and that was a very successful program in Australia. We've expanded it in Europe, uh, within China as well. Um, and I, I, I'm a big proponent of this, of this program itself. I think it does a lot of good. I think it builds up a lot of like, you know, human interaction at times when people are most in need. I think it leverages a lot of what we as a company have as well. Um, and it's one that I advocate for and look for opportunities within Korea, within China, uh, within our different, different, uh, our, our different businesses. You know, that being said, that's not one there. Even I would advocate and say, look, this is one of our eight, you know, eight ESG priorities that we have within the company, because there are other things that I think are more central to the, to, to the company itself. So if we were going through a list of the top 20, I would probably be advocating that this program itself is one of those top 20 that's there. And, you know, it fits very much within the themes that we have about, you know, all of beer being local, local, natural and inclusive. And that's really informs a lot of our ESG strategy. But I, I wouldn't want to replace one of the eight priorities that we have specifically with this program, even though I personally think it's a phenomenal program and it does a lot of good that's there. Um, and those are, you know, different debates that we've had, but that's where when we've rolled out these programs, it's been very much with the business itself, with the CEO in those different countries and making sure that it's launched in an appropriate way, because it's not about publicity. It's about the impact and about people at the time. And yes, there is a reputation building element that comes along with it, but that's not at all what you want to lead with or even be talking about. You really want to be connecting to the community and being there at times of need uh, and using the, the scale that you have as well. And so those are, you know, certainly senior management level conversations. And then those are the types of activities that we would report into, into the board as well, as we're designing the, the strategy about different things that we can use our scale for. And that's where those, those difficult prioritizations come into play. So there's kind of an example, but there's many of those as well, where people might feel very passionate and personally involved, and it might do doing a lot of good, but it might also not be the top strategic priority for the company overall in terms of the business operations, let alone kind of the, the ESG initiatives that tie in very closely. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that example. Yeah, pleasure. So wrapping up, um, what ESG regulatory developments do you expect to see in the next six to 12 months? Yeah, so uh, I think we're, I would anticipate that we'll see a consolidation even more. I mean, if you think about like kind of uh, the financial rating analysts, you know, essentially it's it's three. Uh, and so it's a pretty standardized methodology. And within ESG, I mean, we've, certainly, we've seen it come down from 30-ish, you know, kind of highly credible, uh, you know, ESG rating agencies, if I, if I can call them those. Uh, and we've seen that come down to kind of a handful at this point. I anticipate we're going to see a lot more within that area. Um, on the regulatory side as well, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more um, within the, the social sector, because certainly there's been a lot of scrutiny within environmental. You know, governance has always been kind of the domain within uh, the regulators um, and even, you know, ISS and a lot of others that are, you know, have, have impacts, even if they're not formal regulators. 
Um, so I do think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny within the social area. Um, if we're looking at pay equity, uh, diversity and inclusion, uh, a lot of the, the different you know, external claims that people are making. Uh, and that's candidly going to be a bit of a balance because you, know, you of course want people to be truthful and be thorough and robust in terms of the methodology that's there. Um, and also at the same time, there's a lot of value just from the simple fact of companies disclosing where you can then open gaps across sectors and industries. And there's a lot more of that scrutiny that's there too. So I think you're going to start seeing a lot more regulation. A lot of that will then carry risks and then that will impact people's behavior also about what is disclosed, how it can be disclosed. And so it's going to be a balance in terms of, you know, yes, more regulation I think is is coming. Uh, and we've seen examples where, where actors are, are not as, you know, transparent as they could have been. Um, and they'll, they'll even make claims. And I think they've rightly been penalized more from the press than it has been in the regulation, but also on the regulation side. And so I think the natural tendency of regulators is to tighten control. Um, and there will probably be a little bit more hesitation about what people report. Um, and that will, it'll be interesting to see what that dynamic looks like in the coming six to 12 months. Um, as I think a lot of companies in this space are looking to have more disclosure and, and describe more uh, transparently, a lot more of the, the details within their operations and other uh, operations as well. Um, so that balance and how that dynamic plays out in the coming six to 12 months, I think will be an interesting dynamic and space to watch. Yeah, definitely a lot to watch. So I think that's about it today. Um, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, I, I think Carrie, you no, know, it's, uh, it's been great here chatting with you. I know with beer, it's uh, very much our product is local, natural, inclusive. That's where we focus our energy. Um, so certainly we, we thank all the supporters who drink our beers uh, and support the, the industry. Uh, we have a great uh, set, 500 products ourselves. Uh, many of those are non-alcoholic. And uh, certainly we're seeing a lot of growth within beer. So it's a pleasure to be here talking with you about beer and, and ESG. So thanks, Karen. Thank you so much for your time today, Craig. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Keep on.